You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you for being with us. This week on the podcast, I'm excited to introduce Sinai Kinfei's conversation with one of the most celebrated names in funk, Steve Arrington. Steve fronted the band Slave. He's widely regarded as a pioneer of the G-Funk sound, and his songs have been sampled by Jay-Z and N.W.A. To mark the release of his new solo album, Down to the Lowest Terms, The Soul Sessions, Steve Arrington spoke to Sinai Kinfei for The Exchange. You're about to hear it, and I hope that you have a wonderful listen. My name is Sanai Kinfei. Um, I'm here thanks to Resident Advisor, uh, having the great honor and opportunity to have a conversation with the living legend, uh, Steve Arrington. How you doing, sir? Sanai, I'm doing great, man. Just uh, just vibing today. I've been listening to some Ohio players all day today, just feeling kind of funky like my man Sugarfoot. Rest in peace, Sugarfoot. So I'm feeling good, my brother. Oh, rest in peace to the to the OG. What was the impact of local groups like the Ohio Players on you coming up in, into the game? Well, the Ohio Players are the fathers of uh, the Dayton Funk movement. They started it, and uh, they were very influential uh, in making the rest of us believe that uh, it's not a super small town, but it's a mid-level you know, town Dayton is. It's not a big city, but... Um, it's about a mid-level as far as people uh, here in, in, in the gym city. Um, but no group had ever really jumped off from here until the Ohio players. And when the Ohio players hit, they hit so hard and they were so original and so unique. We didn't try to sound like them, but we were influenced by them in, a t- in terms of we wanted to be unique in our own way. And what I really dig about the Dayton movement and the Ohio players is that if you look at all the groups that came out of Dayton, I'm talking about Lakeside, I'm talking about Zap, Heat Wave, Sun, uh, Faso, all of these groups, Slave, uh, all these groups have their own, their own sound. It's not a producer-driven music. Um, it isn't this one group of artists is so influential that everyone sort of follows their sound. Uh, we follow the fact that we wanted to be unique in our own way, and that's the big impact that they've had on me um, from the beginning with Pain, the first time I heard them on the radio doing Pain. That's an amazing cover too, by the way. I don't know what the <laughs> I don't know what the impact of the <laughs> the album covers were in Ohio at the time, but I know for a, a lot of people that was a the, the Sonics as well as the artwork uh, was visionary. With regards to the Dayton sound, I think you you just referenced what made Ohio such a uh, formative stage or platform for a very specific strain of what ultimately became funk music. 
in America? In my opinion, James Brown came to Cincinnati from down south, and he uh, was on King Records. And a lot of people don't talk about King Records, or even some people don't even know about King Records, but they put out a lot of great music. James Brown uh, being the the biggest artist on, on King Records. Now, what was so cool about that, he came to the Midwest and he picked up a bunch of young, young lions, man. Uh, Bootsy Collins, Catfish, and a bunch of cats from Cincinnati who were smoking musicians and on fire. And, and they gave James Brown some fresh fire. Uh, of course, he was the funkiest man on earth. So that being said, um, James Brown coming to the Midwest and, and, and Cincinnati, which is down the street from Dayton, we were just blown away by what we were hearing out of Cincinnati, out of Bootsy and all those guys. And again, that being another spark plug for um, come from what was coming out of Dayton, Ohio players, like I said, Zap, Slave, Lakeside, Sun, the group Dayton, Vesta Williams. I mean, we all were very, very excited about what was happening down in Cincinnati, the Isley brothers as well. I mean, they go all the way back to Twist and Shout. Um, so the Isley brothers, decade after decade, and you know, we just felt what was happening in Cincinnati, that our scene could be um, very much uh, uh, powerful in that way. What was your um, home life like? Um, in Dayton, um, you know, did you come from a musically inclined family? Um, you know, what was the origin story for how the Arrington family came to be in Ohio? I know for a lot of people, uh, you know, they're not too far away from the South, and particularly generation wise. So I'm just curious to how uh, you became an, an, a musician and also uh, what were the influences in your house that led to you? Uh, being on your path? Well, my parents both were into music. Uh, I can remember as a kid on Saturday morning cleanings, my mother would get up and say, all right, we're going to do our Saturday morning cleaning. And we're cleaning, you know, face boards and we, we're cleaning windows and, you know, we're just really going over the house and making sure it's real, real nice and clean and everything is totally on point. And when we did that, my mother would play music. And uh, she played a lot of Aretha Franklin, but I'm talking about Aretha before she was on Atlantic. I'm talking about Skylark when she was doing more jazz, uh, smooth jazz sort of uh, sounds, of course. And then, of course, Aretha on the Atlantic uh, label as well. Uh, we were listening to a lot of Etta James, uh, early Etta James, and then we would listen to some jazz too, like Walk on the Wild Side, Jimmy Smith, um, Kenny Burrell, uh, Chili Concarni, um, and this group called the Delegates. My mother used to love the Delegates. Now, my father was a little different. He enjoyed uh, the Motown and the R&B, but he was even more into more hard bop. He's the one who introduced me to the great Thelonious Monk. I'll never forget it. You need to check this out. I says, oh, okay, now I'm about uh, 
I'm about 15. When I first heard Thelonious, my parents had uh, divorced uh, after uh, my eight uh, eight years old. And they, they, they divorced then, right? So I would go over to my pop's house and uh, he'd be playing some music. And one day he played Thelonious Monk and I was just blown away. So I had some diversity there and then I had an older brother. His name is Victor. Um, he played saxophone and he had bands. He was a band leader. Um, and so check this out. In some of the groups that he had, Judy Morrison played with him for a while. Now my brother is seven years older than me. So I'm like a little guy sitting on the t steps watching these rehearsals, right? Uh, so uh, Marvin Pierce, who also was playing in the Ohio Players trombone. Um, you have Marvin Craig, who played with my brother for a while, the bass player for Lakeside. And of course, um, going back to Junie Morrison, he was uh, the original lead singer with the Ohio Players before he went out solo. And then he went on to do music with P-Funk as well. Some great, great stuff with P-Funk. He's the one doing the voice on the Funky Worm, right? Exactly. Yeah, very innovative cat, man. Uh, awesome dude. And and so what's so interesting, the original drummer from Slave, Tim Dozier, was also in my brother's band. I watch these guys every day in their rehearsals, right? Um, and so I was, you know, listening to the elite musicians in Dayton who were older than me. And uh, they've seen my interest, so uh, I started out playing drums. So the drummers would say, hey, man, Steve, you can play the drums, you know, when we're not rehearsing. We know you, you'll take care of them. You're not going to tear stuff up. And so they took an interest in me. And every once in a while, if, we were, if they were doing a gig where it wasn't in a club where I couldn't play, they would let me play bongos. Uh, so that's kind of how it all started uh, locally. My brother's band called the Soul Agents. One was the Soul Agents. One was the Citations. And like I said, all these great musicians at one time or another was in my brother's band before they went on to be into the national and international acts that they uh, started to play with. You mentioned um, essentially uh, your early fascination or interest in the bongos. Uh, you made a living uh, as a, percuss a percussionist, uh, you actually uh, were in San Francisco um, playing with uh, the Escovito brothers, right? Which people know as the um, the Latin percussionist sound of Santana, and also for those that don't know, the I think uh, the the dad of Shi uh, Li. Um, what led you to uh, you know, a native Ohioan <laughs> to uh, go to San Francisco during this era. And how did you end up playing with um, the Escovitos? Well, uh, the Dayton group Lakeside went out to L.A. to make it. And we were very, Lakeside was about four, four to five years older than me. Some, somewhere in there like that. And we looked up to Lakeside. Now, the Ohio players were the national act that just blew up. Lakeside was the group that was more in our age group. 
we used to do these talent shows in Battle of the Bands. And I was in a group called the So Illusions and Eluders. It was the band playing behind singing groups. We were doing the moments. Uh, we were doing um, things like from the stylistics. And it was great, you know. It was doo-wop music with the band playing behind those guys. Um, but Lakeside would win so many of the... Matter of fact, I, any talent show that I saw we were involved in, Lakeside, if they came, was like, well, okay, everybody else is coming in second. Because Lakeside usually won the talent shows and battle of the bands in the age group that I was coming up in. Uh, they were still a little older. So while I was still in high school, they moved out to L.A. to make it. And we were so influenced by that. When I left high school, graduated, I said, I'm going to go out to the West Coast, too. But I went to the Bay Area. And the reason I went to the Bay Area, there was a friend there that I had, um, there was a guy, his name was T.R. Turner. He used to be in Cisco and the Kid, uh, an actor. And he was from Dayton and his brother lived out there. And I was uh, I was still very much interested in the hippie movement because I loved, I loved Jimi Hendrix and I loved, you know, Jefferson Airplane. I was very much into rock music, uh, R&B music as well. Sly was out there. Uh, and also um, <clears throat> Tower Power, another group, uh, Cold Blood, was from there. And I was very much influenced by that, and I wanted to be a part of that culture where, which, where the music was more wide open there, as I saw it. So I went out there and um, tried to make it out there, and lo and behold, I hadn't been out there very long at all. And I went for a ride with a friend of mine played organ, and we were putting a band together. Went for a ride, and he says, yo, man, that's Coke Escovito water in his lawn over there. I'm like, nah, nah, no way. He said, yeah, it is. That's Coke Escovito. So I get out of the car, and I say, okay, Mr. Escovito, I don't want to bother you. I know you're watering your lawn, and I, but I just want to tell you, that stuff you did on Abraxas, that Santana album, just, oh, my goodness. I love your work, and... I'm out here from Ohio, Dayton specifically, trying to make it. And hey, man, if you know anybody who's looking for a drummer, hey, here's a card. And, you know, and so he was very chilled out. I didn't stay long. I just said what I had to say and left. And the next thing he's as I was leaving, he says, you know what? There's a guy I know who is looking for a drummer. Then he said, come to this address, Blase Blase School. In about a week. So about a week later, I came to the address and it happened to be at his house. Right. So I go there and I, I get the audition for this group that was opening for him. Now, Coke was actually at the rehearsal, sort of checking everything out. And he says, I like your playing. I want you to play with me, too. So the other guy who was a smooth jazz flute player open for Coke Escovito and I'd play his set and then I'd play with Coke afterwards. And that was my introduction to the game. And through Coke, I met Sheila. She sat in with us one time in San Francisco. I'd never heard a female player uh, on, on Kungas and all of that before percussion. Blew my mind. 
being around Coke and those guys and Pete, his older brother, who also had played with Santana. And now he had a group, Pete and Sheila Escovito, doing straight ahead jazz salsa. The drummer for the band was Billy Cobham, who was my idol. I mean, Billy oh, wow. Cobham. Oh, my God. So you got a 17-piece salsa band with Billy Cobham on drums. It sounded like a freight train coming. In that setting, I started to learn different rhythms, and I started to really get my uh, timbali chops together. Coke really spent time with me, and the Escovito family really just showed me a lot of love. Because coming from the Midwest, there wasn't a lot of Latino influence culturally. That was more East Coast and West Coast in the 70s. That being said, you know, I just got around that energy and learned the rhythms and, uh, and, and learned the, uh, the nuances of the feel of the music. Um, and it was a special time. Uh, Mr. Escovito, Coke Escovito, I call him my pops in the game. I guess you would liken this time. I didn't know you, you got to play with Billy Cobham. That's, that's amazing. That's, that's one of my favorite I drummers. I didn't play with him. I saw him play with the Escovitos. I opened for them. Coke opened for them. So I actually, you know, was on the same bill. But I saw Billy Cobham playing with a 17-piece salsa band. Now, mind you, Bill Summers was on percussion in that band from Bill Summers, Summers Heat. Julian Priester was in that band on trombone. Eddie uh, Henderson was on trumpet. It was crazy. Ray Obiedo was on guitar. Mark Soskin, who ended up playing with Billy not long after that time with the Escovitos. It was a powerful band. And I played drums with them after Billy left. And that's when I started playing with them. Yeah. Um, okay, so you went to Escovito University. In the Bay, you got your yeah. you got your uh, graduate degree, and uh, you took your Latin tinged percussion with you back to Ohio, start playing with Slave, correct? Absolutely, yeah. Can you talk about um, your time with Slave? How you came to play? How you came to play with um, on the, the concept? And also, um, it's very interesting too because um you don't usually have a a, a a backing musician end up becoming a vocalist i think uh you and maybe uh my brother uh carl mcintosh from uh, loose ends kind of have the same trajectory because he also went from being uh, uh one of the session musicians and then becoming the lead vocalist so can, can you talk about how that the that transition began and ultimately leading into you uh, doing your own thing? Well, I had did, did my tenure with uh, the Escovitos, and right when that was winding down, Sheila was going to uh, George Duke, and that's really when the world started to know who the great Sheila, who is now Sheila E., but Sheila Escovito, um, who she was. She first kicked off real big with George Duke. Uh, Billy Cobham had left to do his thing. Uh, so um, Bill Summers went and did Summers, Bill Summers, Summers Heat. So after we, and, and you know, the the soloist, the featured soloist at that time with them was Carlos Santana himself, who has stepped away from his group just to do something different for a while. We did these shows together. He went back to his own unit as well. 
right about the time when that was, uh, you know, slowing down and I'm going, okay, what's going to be the next thing I'm going to be doing? Slave called me. They were in Concord, I think, um, California, saying that they were going to do a um, drum chair change. And would I be interested in coming to the band? And that would mean going back to Ohio. And I'm like, yeah, man, because I'm just finishing this thing uh, with the Escovitos. It was just awesome. And uh, we had played together. Some of the guys from Slave had played together in a group called the Young Mystics. And we were locally together. And I was three years older than the great Mark Adams, rest in peace. Um, and also Floyd Miller and who else? And Tom Lockett was both of those guys, all three from Slave. Uh, Tom Lockett and Floyd Miller are both still with us. Uh, that being said, we had a group together called the Young Mystics, and I was like three to four years older than them. So I graduated, and like I said, I went on to the West Coast. They continued on, and Stevie Washington from New Jersey, who ended up being the leader of him and, and Mark Hicks, started the group Slave. Mark Hicks being from Dayton, Stevie being from uh East Orange, New Jersey, was the nephew of Pee Wee from the trumpet player for the Ohio players. Moved to Dayton, stayed with Pee Wee. They ended up putting a band together, called it Slave, did their thing. And what was interesting in terms of me being back into the group, the great Mark Adams, who we had played together just two or three years prior to uh, them doing Slave and me going out to the West Coast, called me up and say, hey, man, we're going to do a drum chair. We'd like you to come and hit. And I'm like, this is perfect, man. So I went to back to Ohio. And the group was kind of, uh, we were in based in Ohio and also based in East Orange, New Jersey, because Stevie was from there. So we kind of was back and forth. Um, and I joined in 78, started out playing percussion and on the Hardness of the World Tour. Tim Dozier was finishing out his time. They had a couple months left before he was to go. Um, and that's when I would move over into the actual drum chair from percussion. Started with percussion. And the first song that I played drums on fully was the joint Stellar Funk. And that was my first recorded uh, time on drums. And uh, the whole... Um, concept album was my first time of recording in the studio on a national and international level i said so you so you played on that jam and then yes. for the next album stevie leaves no stevie didn't leave until after the stone jam album so there was the concept album just to touch of love stone jam then stevie left and then the last joint i did with slave was the showtime album and and, and stevie left because he went and started doing Aurora, correct? Aurora, yes. Well, we, we had did an Aurora album together, sort of in the same way that P-Funk had so much talent in the band. George would put out albums on different people, Bootsy, the Horny Horns, Brides of Funkenstein. So we were influenced by that uh, mindset. So we did an Aura album, and the first one was just called Aura. That's when... The guys were still from Slave, and I'm talking about these people was Kurt Jones, who was also from New Jersey, who Stevie knew, 
and Starlena Young, who was also from Jersey. They had joined Slave, and they joined Slave on the Just a Touch of Love album. And Star may have even been there on the concept album as well. Kurt joined on Just a Touch of Love album. That being said, they were already from Jersey. Stevie knew them. So he decided he wanted to keep on with Aura, and he left the group, him, Starlena Young, Kurt Jones, and also Tom Lockett, who was from Dayton. They left to continue on with Aura, and the rest of us continued on, and our follow-up to Stone Jam was Showtime. And that's the first album we had done with Stevie Starr and Kurt and Thomas Lockett, those guys weren't in the group anymore. So what what led you to start Hall of Fame and ultimately, um, you know, do a smash with uh, Dancing in the Key of Life? Up until this time, you've been a sideman or a part of other people's organizations. It seems like you made a definitive choice to do your own thing at this point. And so what 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 was the mindset that led to that as well as you know, the life as, you know, the marquee artist. The interesting thing about Slave was after the first album, there was always people coming and going. It just so happened, though, the people that came to the group added more and added in. It was a, a growth that... Um, happened in a way that made sense. The the, the audience dug the development where things were going. Unfortunately, though, because of the people coming and going, we were having uh, business problems stemming from the original contracts that uh, the group had signed. And they were just, you know, they had only done slide. They were only 16 years old. So, so things from, from that time spilled over year after year after year after year. We weren't able to get those things ironed out and together. That being said, when you have a group with a lot of financial issues and so much talent and trying to figure out how to get out of this and, and how to make that right and not being able to, to do it, Stevie and those guys left first, like I said, to do the Aura thing. I stayed for another album, um, and I was never actually signed to the group. I was still a sideman, and how I ended up being the primary lead, lead vocalist and uh, one of the primary writers, only God knows that. That being said, though, um, things never really changed. The music was still wonderful. Our relationships were cool, but we were having uh, dire financial problems. That being said, I decided I'm going to go ahead and start on my own and do my own thing, which led to Steve Arrington's Hall of Fame. Still was very cool with Slave. We didn't have some like crazy breakup uh, and was very cool with Stevie, Curtin, Star, and Lockett as, as Aura. It's just from the business point of view, those we the people that came to the group uh, unfortunately, the original thing, contracts and, and the things that the guys had signed earlier, we were never able to make that right and get that going. So it just ended up being 
really the reason that the group uh, broke up and, you know, we had to go our separate ways. Uh, a lot of people from my generation, uh, we came to know of your music due to the, uh, you know, you, your popularity with some of our greatest uh, hip hop producers <laughs> of, of our generation, uh, like Q Tip and others. Um, so Weekend and Knees, I, I knew Betty, Betty By. Um, my favorite is uh, the Willie May. Uh, that's my favorite song of yours. I think that's a a beautiful song, and I, yeah, I always appreciate it. Um, hearing it whenever in, in the context of whenever it comes up. Um, what led you from your your time as a solo artist to uh, you 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 took a very significant break? Can you talk about that 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 transition? I my first album. Steve Arrington's Hall of Fame one, and had come off of uh, the Showtime album, and um, so I had a good headwind in terms of what I wanted to do, and there was good energy around my name because of my connection with Slave. Um, the first album, you know, there was Weak in the Knees, there was Nobody Can Be You But You, um, there was Way Out. So those were three singles off the first album, it really resonated. People dug, you know, my my now solo venture, right? Um, and so I continued to evolve it. And here's one of the things that being around the Escovitos were so important into my continue uh, continuing to develop and, 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 and get into different things. My initial hit was not with slaves, so they slave was not my primary understand of standing of how the music and the business worked. It was from the Escovitos. The Escovitos played uh, Latin jazz, right? So I was more as a musician working with different people, involving myself in in different styles and perspectives. So when this thing with Slave started to not go in the way that I hoped that it would, I didn't have a problem with going and say, well, I'm just going to do my own thing because I came from a mentality of more of a jazz musician in the first place, right? right? So I just looked at it more as, oh, okay, like, you know, you had Mahavishnu Orchestra where uh, Billy Cobham, played with them for a while, and then he went off to do his own thing. Jan Hammer, who played with that group, went off to do his thing. People that played with different Miles bands, those guys ended up being leaders themselves. I'm talking about the Tony Williams and, and Herbie Hancock and things like that. So my mentality, I say it like this. I'm known as an R&B funk guy, radio cat, but I think like a jazz musician. So with that being said, I just said, hey, I'm going to snatch up some cats that I really dig playing with. And boom, we did some new music and did some new things. And then I continued to evolve where I wanted to do dance music that was more spiritually based uh, because I come from a family of preachers. Cousins, great uncles, you know, just, you know, a family from pre of preachers. And I just started to really develop and feel like my music had to reflect uh, my, the spiritual side of my life. 
Well, that took me on to two or three albums, and then I just decided to walk away from it, period, because I wanted to really spend my time on my search um, and my connection with the creator. Now, it, musical influences in that were the great John Coltrane, who his spirituality became more and more and more a part of his presentation of his music. Carlos Santana as well in that middle period when he was uh, studying with Shri Shin Moy and, and also um, uh, Mahavishnu uh, John McLaughlin as well. Very influenced by those people, but at the same time, the fact that my family had preachers and people who were clearly um, off into the things of God, it was a natural progression for me, and I wasn't afraid to do that because, again, like I said, I'd always followed my heart when it came to the music. And so when it felt like, you know, hey, man, I had to really devote this time here. So I'm going to step away from the music. It just happened to be for 25 years. I didn't know, you know, it just. Uh, and then after 25 years, I decide, you know, I'm going to do this again. And people are like, what, 25 years, bro? That's like a long time. You're going to do it again? I'm like, yeah. How you going to pull it off? I said, there's nothing to pull off. I'm just going to do music again. And it is what it is. It goes where it goes. I do it because I love it. Um, and so after 25 years of being involved in, in ministry, I decided to get back into the music. And uh, here I am today. The people received what I was doing. And... Um, I didn't realize how much the music had resonated through the years with the people and also artists like you mentioned, Q-Tip, uh, uh, someone like um, Dr. Dre and those guys out on the West Coast, the whole G-Funk movement. Um, and so there was a lot of, of people who, you know, uh, who was vibing on uh, brand Nubians, you know, um, vibing on samples, vibing on the music. Yeah. Were you surprised with your impact or the relevance of your music to hip hop? Like, what what was hip hop? Someone who came from the generation just before hip hop, right? What was you as an outsider looking at hip hop? Uh, what what was that perspective like? As well as someone who was sampled by hip hop artists, how did you how, how did you make of it? I I loved hip hop. The early. I remember the first tours, Grandmaster Flash, Treacherous Three, and those guys, Big Bank Hank and those guys. I remember their first tours. Also, I remember when Eric and B and Rakim opened up for me once. I can't remember exactly where that was, but I dug the whole thing and its progression. Uh, Run DMC, you know, I, I, I dug Tribe. Now, I'm just talking about my joy of the music. Now, the fact that these people that I was digging, the fact that they was filling me and I'm hearing the samples and they're like, yo, man, we're, we're rocking with Arrington. We're rocking with this Dayton sample as a scoop. I'm hearing Ohio players being sampled. You know, people loving Zap, people loving, you know, Steve Arrington's slave. And I'm hearing these samples. And then I'm starting to connect with these artists and, and, and meet them and talk with them. And they're letting me know how important this music was to them. 
Uh, and, and in turn, I was letting them know how much their music uh, was important to me. So it was a great give and take. And But prior to me connecting with them, I was vibing on hip-hop from the gate. We had to catch up. The business side had to catch up, though, because in the beginning, there were samples was happening, and people weren't getting paid because the business hadn't caught up to the creativity yet. Once that side of it got worked out, then whatever for me was a hindrance at all, none of that happened to, had to do with the music or the creativity side. It was the business side. Once that got straightened out, I mean, it was, it was just crazy dope. I mean, for, as far as I was concerned. And the last thing I did before I actually left the music scene for 25 years is I did an album with, uh, um, Funky Funky Wisdom with my man, um, Kumo D. Yep. I was on the Funky Funky Wisdom album with Kumo D. And that's the last thing I did before I had stepped off the scene for 25 years. What's, uh, I, I'm glad you, you referenced that because I think that the business element of the music industry is a, is sorely, uh, misunderstood. Uh, especially for a lot of uh, musicians, uh, a lot of producers. We see this a lot in social media today where people are, com you know, uh, rightfully complaining about, um, you know, sampling issues or clearance issues or, you know, uh, um, royalty situations that they, they find themselves in. Um, is that something that, you know, if you, it was a magical time machine <laughs> going back, is there a lot of things that you feel like you coming in as a young younger man, um, you misunderstood? Because I think when you're referencing the business end, as far as hip hop is concerned, I think that's like the Turtles uh, court case with uh, Tommy Boy, right? Is that, is that what kind of helped uh, clear up a lot of the issues with, with sampling? Yes, yes. Um, and others, uh, that being said, my generation, one of the things I really love about hip hop, along with the creativity, the music, uh, people who just spitting crazy bars, um, is the fact that hip hop looked at the generations before and said, you know what? You know, we don't want to be another generation of black musicians, creatives that aren't getting paid. Um, now, Hip-hop went through some um, emotional things with its growth. And there's people who left up out of here way too soon in hip-hop finding its footing on the different styles. But so many, there's, there's always in every generation, in every... In all the music, there always are those stories that are sad stories. The funk era, the soul doo-wop era, rock and roll, there's always those sad stories. But what I dug about hip-hop, and I dug about Michael and Prince, who really opened the door to thinking in that way, a lot of hip-hop made sure their business was together. And so, so many hip-hop cats 
got paid and was able to flip their money into other money streams. And uh, that's another thing that was exciting and continues to be exciting for me in hip hop. I think for a lot of people in L.A., especially um, within the nightlife, for a certain age, <laughs> you had the transformative impact for the city of Funkmosphere, um, which was ran by a clever cat from Pasadena by the name of Dame Funk. Uh, and I think his impact globally is understated uh, with regards to the neo-funk and just the reverence for the music of your era. Um, can you speak to uh, what uh, the relationship that you two have and also how it ultimately led to um, you find out about Stone Stroll, um, the EP you guys had, um, uh, the higher one, um, and, and just how that parlayed into down to the lowest terms? I started, I call myself a music adventurist. So I had gotten to a place around 2008, 2007. I said I'd been listening to the music on commercial radio. And I said, you know what? I want to find out. I hear what's going on on commercial radio. I want to find out some other things that are going on. And I started to really search out new music, new artists, fresh perspectives, interesting perspectives. The first person I came across was Roz G, the mighty Roz G, rest in peace. That was 2008, and I started getting into Roz G. I started getting into Hudson Mohawk. And and there was another artist, BT. He was more of a sort of like a pop electronic kind of dude, but I dug how he was doing using the electronics, right? So I started to get into this underground thing, and that doorway opened through Roz G. So later on in 2008, 2009, 2010, around in there, I'm not exactly sure, more like 2010, Dane Funk hit me up and uh, on one of the social media platforms and said he's doing this funk. He wants to really keep the funk vibe going in his generation. Um, and he heard a loop that I did called The Invade Has Arrived on my then um, page that I had. Um, and I had just threw a loop up there of me doing something and did a quick loop called The Invade on my on my page, right? Uh, sorry, not not to cut you off, sir. What, what was your, if you don't mind, because I know people on RA would, would love to hear what was your 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 setup your tech setup at the at this time and and i had a friend who actually texted me he asked me to ask you what was the equipment that you used on uh nobody can be you but you well nobody can be you but you we were into obviously profits we was into the profit keyboards i think on drums I had a set of uh on that, had a set of Tama. Tama set on at that time. I really was into the Prophets. I'm thinking about another keyboard. Oberheim. Also rocking the Oberheim. Was really off into those. Um, and, of course, we had the great engineer, um, also producer, Jimmy Douglas, who's gone on to do some of the greatest work 
um, from Timberland, um, and just you name it. Missy's done so much. He even did that last uh, 414, was it? 444? He's been going on and um, so he was involved uh, on the engineering side and also co-production as well. So, you know, sonically, we were at that time right at the cutting edge uh, with, uh, you know, nobody can be you but you and way out in those things like that. Um, but, you know, when it moved off into more of a MIDI perspective, when I started doing um, my thing, I did an, I dropped an album called Pure Thing. This was before I did the thing higher with Dane. And at that time, I had rocked Reason, and you didn't do audio at that time with Reason, so I had my Cubase. I did Reason for the tracks, and Cubase, I, you know, I, I did the vocals. Um, and that was my setup at the time, Reason, Cubase, and, uh, you know, trying to get my my plug-in game together. So, you know, I was rocking some waves at that time. I hadn't did any UAD at that time. Um, and so, you know, I was really wanting to develop and learn in the box game, you know what I'm saying? So I studied, because I come from contained band world. Um, and so, yeah, so that was a lot of fun for me, but it also was a lot of work to understand how, you know, compressors work, to understand you know, how to really, um, when to use the EQs, you know, to, to, to pull frequencies, you know, before perhaps, you know, pushing up frequencies and things like that. I had to learn all that kind of stuff. Um, and I enjoyed doing it. It was a lot of hard work because I'd come from self-contained bandwork, getting the right feel, you know, when to move the snare up in the pocket or maybe sit the snare back some versus everything being on the grid and all of that. So um, that was all part of me getting that together. I really enjoyed doing it, but it was a lot of work. I appreciate you speaking on how you uh, on your own uh, pivoted to learning reason in, in the modern MIDI era uh, coming off the boards uh, because it, it helps to better understand why down to the lowest terms sounds the way that it does. Because um, a lot of artists from your generation, when they do try to make music with younger artists, uh, it's usually uh, a younger producer's uh, conceptualization of the 70s, you know, or the 60s or the things that they are like uh, whimsically obsessed about and uh, an older artist trying to maneuver in between that and it doesn't sound that good with with well, what you have done is you've learned the, essentially the new language of what what we as pr producers of today are doing and using and in your own vein created a let's say a, a Dayton dialect uh so to speak off the off of what is the future and uh it it, it sounds uh amazing uh, so, yes, c please continue on the, the, the Dame Funk relationship. Well, I appreciate that, what you just said, because um, I did. I put in the work, and, and I enjoyed it. I, I realized you can, it's important to continue to evolve and to respect that it's young people's turn. You know what I mean? I remember being 20. I remember being 22 
And I remember older artists, some showed funk love, some of them more the R&B cats that were more singing group cats. It was like, eh. oh, they, you know, there was because things change and, and they always do. You know, once it leaves the wheelhouse that you're familiar with, it's like, OK, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to make the adjustments uh, now? People have to do what's best for them. I'm not saying that what works for me works for someone else. What I'm saying, though, for me, it was important to me to continue to adjust, take on the new um, perspectives, working in the box, still doing my things with musicians, but understanding that, you know, there's other ways to get this done. And I want to be a part of that system. And I want to put in the work and I want to respect those guys who come up under this and it's second nature to them. They, 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 they don't have to adjust. It's, it's what it is for them. That being said, for me, that's a lot of fun. I enjoy it. it at times that I scratch my head and say, yo, man, okay, it'll get better tomorrow. Uh, that being said, though, to me, that's what this is all about, to continue to do it as long as you can at a high level and continue to challenge yourself to make fresh music. Now, stepping back into uh, Dane Funk, Dane Funk hit me up. He said, hey, man, let's do a 12 inch. I listened to his music. Let's do it. And Peanut Butter Wolf. Talked to me on the phone as well. Said, hey, man, we love you out here. But I'm like, really? And da, 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 da. I'm like, yeah, for real? Y'all really? He says, yeah, come out here, man. It's this place called the Do-Over. You're going to see. People love you out here. I'm like, really? So I go out to do this show, the Do-Over. And I'm doing Just a Touch of Love. And it's this outside place. And it's real cool. And, you know, it's like the DJ and I'm doing, you know, okay, DJ flipping it, okay. Which is a new world for me, right? New world. Never rocked with a DJ before. So, all of a sudden, I hit just a touch and the whole place knows all the song. They know the background vocals. They know the lead. And they looking at me, I told you. And I'm like, yo, man, they feeling it. So, from there, I was... I was so blessed to hear that the music had translated into young people and they were like, yo, man, we want to hear more of what you're doing. In a week in the knees, they knew that. Watching you, they knew all the joints, right? So we did the album higher. And what the way we did it, I had never done that before either. Dame sent me tracks. I'm in the lab. I do vocals, send them back. They're going, oh, yeah, that's working. Send me some more joints. It started, it was just going to be the 12-inch. It went to three, it went to six, it went to nine joints. And they said, hey, man, why don't you just jump on Stone's Throw? And like I said, because I had really dug what Roz G was doing. And I dug what Hudson Mohawk was doing. And then that moved me into Flying Lotus and, and all of that. And then I found out Lo Lotus, his aunt was Alice Coltrane. Um, and then, of course, with 
connecting with Stone's Throat, then that got me into the Mighty Mad Lid. And, you know, then there was Dilla. Now, I had heard Dilla's music, but I didn't know who that was. Slum Village, I didn't know exactly who that was. So now, not only am I doing my research and vibing, I'm actually with the people who get down, you know, on the underground scene heavy. And that's exactly where I was wanting to go. That doorway was through Roz G. And I was able to tell Roz G, I think it was at the uh, 15th anniversary for Stone's Throw. Yes, I think that was the, and he was there and I told Raj G how important he was to me and how his music opened me up to a whole brand new horizon. And I was so happy to be able to tell him that before he passed away. That's beautiful. I think, uh, you know, we're, we're all still on that, on the mothership with him, zooming around. Um, he's He's a legend in his own right and it's always, so humbling to um, hear someone, um, you know, resonate. So who's impactful in, in himself uh, resonate with his his artistry. Um, I want to talk to you about, uh, and that's an amazing um, um, segue too, because you, as someone from a generation previous, recognize the artistry of 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 someone presently. And I think that's, that's a tradition um, that we need to uh, build more upon uh, in black music, especially. Um, we see that obviously in your most latest venture uh, down to the lowest terms where, you know, you know, you are in the studio, Stone Strow studio, working with some of the, you know, hottest young minds in, in the game. From you know knowledge to uh, Devin Morrison uh, to 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 Ringo to Mind Design and uh, as well as Shivo, um, can you talk about just the sessions that led to the album? Uh, what was the the ambiance of those of those rooms and and how things came to be about? I had talked to Chris and we were talking about doing a new album. And I was telling him I wanted to do something different. I wanted to stretch it. I wanted to open up. And I didn't want to do what perhaps would be a classic funk record that would be um, a great record, but it would still sort of fall in the line of what perhaps one would have thought I would come with. Still would have had interesting things. I'm not saying it wouldn't have been creative, but I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something more soulful. I wanted to do something more bluesy. I wanted to do something more like, like the track I did with Knowledge, Make You Say Yah. You know, ba ba da dun 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 Da, 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 da. You know what I'm saying? It's real. It's almost like a doo-wop type of joint. The background vocals, right? Something that you would never expect from me to do. And then we have the fusion thing. You know what I'm saying? 
of favorite, my favorite swing. So there's this music is coming from different directions. Getting to the producers, it was a magical, magical time in making this record. I, I really connected with all the producers. There was a, a camaraderie in our respect for one another. I appreciated the love they were showing me for my past work and how they were excited on where they were hearing where I was coming from in collaboration with them. I'm excited about what they're doing because I'm digging their stuff prior to us working together. So, you know, these sessions sessions were magical. And I have to say this, my friend, when I was a teenager, his name was Alan Bridges. We were both drummers and we both used to dream about making it one day. I continued on. He decided to go a different direction. He moved to D.C. and we sort of weren't connecting for years. He came back to Dayton and he was very ill. Um, I went to see him in the hospital. Um, he got better and then, you know, I continued on into the music, go to L.A. to do the album. And his sister calls me and tells me he's in bad shape. In the middle of the album, he passed away. And it hit me so hard because he was my friend that knew my dreams. And here I was in my 60s, still pushing the envelope, still wanting to do fresh things, still wanting to challenge myself. Things that we had talked about one day, one day, one day. Um, of course, I had done Slave and, you know, Steve Rankin's Hall of Fame. And, you know, he was in all that. And we shared that and that was all good. But I'm older now. I'd been gone for a long time. Getting back into the game, we hadn't seen each other for years. He was ill. I saw him in the hospital. He passed in the middle of making this record. And that was another motivation for me because I was still pushing. I was still going for it. Now, this album called Down to the Lowest Terms, The Soul Sessions, I had decided in my early 20s, one day I'm going to make an album called Down to the Lowest Terms. I love that 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 line. It's a mathematic, uh, mathematics term. I All through the years I thought, I want to do it, but nothing sounded like it. I made some great records through the years, but it didn't sound like down to the lowest terms. So I never used it. I thought it was a hip phrase. I thought it, people would think, oh, that sounds exotic. So I didn't use it just because I thought it was a dope line. I waited until the music really supported it and they connected together. Now I'm in, I'm in my sixties, right? I'm thinking about this in my 20s, all the way through, one day, one day, one day, 30s, uh, 40s, 50s. I never let that go. When I got with these guys in L.A., mind design, knowledge, Devin Morrison, Shebo, Jay Paper, you know, all these cats, Brian Ellis, all these cats, man. 
Yo, Benedict. man. Benedict. Yeah, man. And Harrison. Um, and it, it's just... And if I miss somebody, please forgive me because everything we did together for me was magic. I'll never forget it as long as I live because it was so special every day. Every day. And there was different producers all the time. It never, it never felt strange. That being said, bro, I listened to it. I said, that's down to the lowest terms. And I put the soul sessions on it because I gave my all on every song that you would say, oh, is this a soul record? Yeah, it's a soul record. It's from my heart. But this, this record has a panoramic view of what I really love and what I really did. And I give my all to it. Because finally, after all these years, man, I did something that sounded like this, this title that I kept filed away all through my 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And I'm in my 60s. And finally, I did music that sounded like down to the lowest terms, man. I mean, I, so you put all of that together, man. This was just magical for me. Magical. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your friend. I think the greatest of artists uh, utilize the experiences of life to create opportunities for us listeners to have, um, you know, emotional um, audio reflections on the things that we're dealing with. So simultaneously, while in in mourning, you've helped many others so i thank you for that what you just talked about with regards to holding this title uh in the ethers of your your mind for so for so long what's it like to age in music well my heroes if i talk about miles i'll talk about miles he consistently never looked back and and uh, was afraid to go forward. He worked with younger musicians. He worked with older musicians. He didn't care. If if he was feeling what you was doing and it was lining up with what he felt the direction he needed to go, he did it. And his horn was always the defining element because his sound was so incredible and and, and, and so personal it brought everything together all the time. So from that point of view, aging, I say, yo, man, I look at Miles and I look at Carlos Santana and I look at um, Herbie Hancock and guys like that who continue to evolve, evolve, musically evolve, musically evolve. Um, aging when it comes to when you look in the mirror and you say, well, I'm not 25 anymore. Well, I'm not 35 anymore. Wow, my hair sure is great. I started using the, you know, the stuff that like, you know, let me, let me darken my joints, man. Let me, let me, you know what I'm saying? And then I thought, you know what? Nah, I'm gonna stop doing that, man. But I went through that. I'm like, yo, man, my stuff is turning white. Um, and it's, the early side of aging is fascinating because 
When you're getting in like your 50s and your late 40s and your 50s, things start to change, but you're on the early side of change or people that you know who are passing away, they're older, but they're young on being old. You feel what I'm saying? People are passing in their 50s, early 50s, you know, stuff like that. The younger side of old in your 50s. Old is very different for me now because of people like Buddy Guy, who is my hero as far as longevity. Miles, my hero for yo, man, I don't care. I'm going to do what I feel. I'm going this way. Bitches brew. Well, wait a minute, Miles. You was just kind of blue and that's, that's, that's the ooh-wee. And he said, yeah, well, check this out. Bitches brew. Okay, Miles. Okay, bit Tutu. Oh, okay. Miles just kept coming at you. He kept coming at you. He kept coming at you. Some people would say, I like this period, Miles. Some people like that period, Miles. Some people like, man, I like the slave period, Arrington. I like the Hall of Fame period. I like the dance period. Yo, man, this new Arrington, I'm feeling. Bottom line is, you always gain new fans. You have some on the fence who say, mm, let me figure out what's going on. But when you've done it from the beginning, like myself, people expect it. That's why I love Prince so much. Um, so age from that position of your body changing. Oh, okay, that's fascinating. And then there's age when you think about, you know, how long can I do this? You know, stuff starts to hurting. You know, you don't recover as quickly. And you go, wow, you know. But the interesting thing about it is this. I remember when I was 16 years old, I saw Papa John Creech. He plays violin and he was playing with Hot Tuna, which was like a subgroup of Jefferson Airplane when they weren't touring. And I remember playing as if it happened yesterday. I was in the front row standing there, Papa John Creech, Papa John Creech. Now he's, I thought he was in his 40s, but he was really in his 50s. I didn't find out till later, playing with all these 20-somethings, right? And I remember saying, one day, I'm going to be Papa John Creech. I want to be like Papa, and here I am. I just did this record. With all these young cats, most of them still in their 20s, with Dane Funk, Mad Lib, you know, doing these collabs. And you know what? I thought, oh, wow. I've turned into Papa John Creech. That's what I wanted to do when I was 16 year old. Hey, people like, you know, the great Flying Lotus and, and the great Thundercat. Cats like that. We doing joints together. We doing Kimmel live together. And I'm like, wow, man. I said it when I was 16. I want to be like Papa John Creech. I want to be that guy that respects the younger cats and say, hey, man, let's do it together. Let's just do something together. I just want to keep learning, man. I just want to keep learning. So my age tells me Focusing, you have to focus more.
you know, because you got more stuff. You got, you know, the older you get, you have all these different responsibilities. And then all of a sudden, you get to that point where you're like, I'm cool with being older. Let's, older, let's, let's get it. That's what I got to. I'm, I'm with it. You know, it's all good. Let's get it. I practice hard. I work hard. But more than that, I'm still dreaming. And that's what the song Keep Dreaming is about. That song is for everybody else, but that song is for me. Yeah, man, I, I'm, I'm, when I talk about this, I get really excited because I love music the way I did when I was 16, when I said I wanted to be like Papa John Creech. And here I am. And I want all these young cats to know how much respect I have for them. And they let me know how much respect they have for me. But at the end of the day, man, I just want to keep growing, pushing and learning and putting out music that I believe in. And then after that, the people decide. I think that's a beautiful note to end upon, sir. Thank you for your time. Thank you for allowing us here at Resident Advisor to have this opportunity um, down to the lowest terms. The Soul Sessions is out now on Stone Stone Records. I, I purchased, so, you know, I'm here I'm here to support. And uh, anytime, you know, once the, the Corona era, uh, you know, safely ends, ends, and we can all come outside, I will be excited to see this album perform live. So thank you. I thank look you. forward to that. Thank you. And I really had a good time, man. I told myself I'm never gonna hold back. I told myself I'm never gonna look back. I made up my mind. I made up my mind. Keep dreaming. Just the other day, I'm gonna have it more.